Cinebuds receives support from Associated Bank. Cinebuds, Cinebuds, two buddies talking about cinema. From Radio Milwaukee, I'm Dory Zori, and you're listening to Cinebuds. This week, we talk about the homegrown documentary made right here in Wisconsin, Beyond Human Nature. Somebody must know something. So did the prosecutors really get it that wrong, that these six don't know anything? It's not human nature not to talk. We were sentenced to life for something we didn't do. They know what they did, and they're the only ones that can, can help themselves at this point. It just struck me as odd that you would just say, well, I don't want to look at the possibility that this may not have been a murder at all. I'm very excited about this podcast today. We have our first Wisconsin filmmaker in here. Welcome, Michael Nielsen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be the first one, and hopefully there's many more. (laughs) I mean, we can't have a Cinebuds podcast about movies and not highlight all the great work that's being done here in Wisconsin. Absolutely. And there's more than people would think. Yeah, no doubt. So give us a little overview of what the documentary Beyond Human Nature is about. Yeah, so in 1992, uh, there was a paper mill worker named Tom Monfiles who was found at the bottom of a pulp vat where he worked with a 50-pound weight tied to a rope which was tied around his neck. So immediately, uh, law enforcement determined it was homicide. They engaged in a two-year-long investigation, which eventually culminated with the trial and conviction of six of his co-workers of murder, of conspiracy to commit homicide. They all went to prison for life. They all still claim they're innocent. And uh, even more bizarre or just twisted based on uh, compared to other tri- true crime documentaries is that Tom's own brother believes they're all innocent as well. He doesn't think they did it. So it's a very mysterious kind of lingering mystery in Green Bay. And uh, yeah, we we made a, a feature film out of it. As a writer and director, how did this even come to your attention? So it was in the 2013 Green Bay Film Festival, believe it or not, with my, our last film, Last Day at Lambeau there. And some advocates on behalf of those six men came and talked to us and said they had our next story, but we didn't really want to do like an advocacy piece so much. We wanted to explore it more from the 30,000 foot level um, and kind of understand why these mysteries developed the way they are. Why does this one stick and not all the other cases that could have stuck? So we engaged into it. We reached out to both sides of the the case and uh, got the people we wanted involved and Nine years later, here we are with uh, the finished product. As a filmmaker, is there a moment when you're investigating and learning about a story where you decide, yes, this is something I want to pursue? And what was that moment with this one? It's a great question. It took me a while with this one, honestly, because there's nothing really in this story that is me on a personal level. So I had to find what it was. But I think I'm personally, it's something different every time, but you kind of just know it when you feel it. And for me, I think I'm really drawn to stories of irreconcilable differences that go on for many, many years, where you have two or more sides on an issue that they just cannot find peace on, cannot reconcile or get a joint you know, belief in or joint truth on. And it just lingers. I'm fascinated by that kind of conflict and picking it apart and saying, why, why can't it, why can't this plane land for everybody? Why is everyone perpetually upset (laughs) about this? Um, So that's what brought me to this one. We are going to dig more into the details with Michael Nielsen about his documentary Beyond Human Nature and talk about how you can watch the documentary as well in the full podcast, which you can find anywhere you get your podcasts now or at RadioMilwaukee.org slash podcasts. We'll be right back. Do you want to know the secret behind the programming you love? It's all funded by the Honor System. As a public radio station, we're based on a very simple model. 
We try to do something meaningful, connecting with you through music and stories. And then we count on those who appreciate what we do to show their support. Are you one of them? Show your support by visiting RadioMilwaukee.org and joining today. All right, we're back with Michael Nielsen. We're talking about the documentary Beyond Human Nature. So Green Bay, you mm-hmm. were in Green Bay for a different film festival? Yeah, the Green Bay Film Festival in 2013, which back then was a, a normal festival. It was like a week. Now it's a year-round thing. So, And you were uh, screening another documentary? I was. You did one about the Packers? Yeah, it was. It was called Last Day at Lambeau, and it was about Brett Favre's separation from the Packers back then. And uh, so we, we screened it there, and it's total coincidence that both these films are set in Green Bay. I, I'm not from Green Bay. I don't know why it happened this way, but it just has. Um, it'll be very weird if the third one is. But yeah, so we were screening that, and these people who know, who are friends and family of uh, certain members of the Monfile Six, which is what the media has dubbed them, were there and said they have our next story for us. These guys are in prison. They didn't do it. Uh, you know, and Tom's brother, Cal, was among them, came and met with us in Madison a couple times because I was living in Madison then. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was a fascinating story. But, you know, I'm, I'm really drawn to trying to understand when people can't find common ground on something so why why if this was so obviously miscarriage of justice if this was so obviously that the monfell six didn't do this why did so many people believe the opposite and if you know after talking to the the lead investigator detective randy winkler and the the da john zakowski at the time who's now a judge same question back there if if it's so obvious these six guys did this why is there so much disbelief in that? Why is why are there new evidentiary hearings coming out in 2015 where we're talking about suicide as a possible theory? I, I'm fascinated when these sorts of schisms erupt and won't go away. And watching the documentary, I was along for that entire journey. You know, usually when you watch these kind of things, you know, it can't help but your brain like trying to make the judgment call of how this is going to end and what evidence is going to come up to kind of prove one way or the other. But Boy, it was really kind of confusing, like how they got convicted almost in the first place without Mm -hmm. being in there. Mm -hmm. And I know that there wasn't a whole lot of like evidence that you brought up in the documentary pointing towards them other than that. That one key witness, the key witness, then Brian Kellner recanted not to ruin anything, but he recanted his statement on his deathbed. Right. Right. And he tried to recant earlier as well. But all this gets very fuzzy. It's, you know, it's 30 years ago. And, you know, so outside of hard records, you get a lot of kind of fuzzy memories from everybody as well. But, yeah, it really did kind of come down to Brian Kellner. I mean, you mentioned not a lot of evidence. That's kind of true. There wasn't a lot of physical evidence, if any. And the state came up with a lot of reasons or, as some would argue, excuses for why those physical evidence didn't exist. But Brian, both sides during the trial said essentially one version of if you don't believe Brian Kellner, the whole case is lost. It's, right. it's about Brian Kellner's testimony. And as people will see in the film, there's a lot of dispute over how that testimony came about, whether he was threatened with losses of his children, access to his kids. He was going through kind of a divorce at the time and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff as well. But again, disputed. Like it's, you know, a lot of true crime documentaries, I feel, are coming in trying to solve it. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like that's my role. I don't feel like it'd be smart for me to try to take on that role. But I'm fascinated to to see, to really put both strongest arguments in the same piece. Because up until now, you'd have to go like, to the advocates to hear their side or read the the state's case throughout the press for all the years mm-hmm. to get the whole picture. Now it's all in one place. One of the most interesting characters in this documentary to me was Randy Winkler, yeah. who, when he was talking, like doing his part in the documentary, explaining his story, seemed very 
trustworthy and very thoughtful and very level-headed, but then going back and hearing how he treated and how he acted back 30 years ago, like in the early 90s, kind of made him come off as a totally different person. Right. So that was so interesting. So as you're doing these interviews, do you get a sense for who's being truthful? <laughs> do you get a sense of like, okay, these facts don't add up? Like how long does it take you to to really get all this information and then decide how you want to put the story together? You, you try very hard to just stay open because you never knew when the next thing would be said that would reframe the way you saw the whole thing. So like every production day during interviews, the crew and I would sit around afterwards and just discuss what we heard. And, you know, one day it's like, oh, I totally believe this guy. And the next day, oh, I totally don't believe that guy, whatever. But you try to stay open. I actually had a little quote that I had taped to my monitor during the interviews that comes from Errol Morris uh, about believing is seeing. So reversing the common phrase just to remind myself that just be mindful of the fact that at any time I think I've got it figured out, stay open. Maybe I don't because it's it's super easy to like start following a narrative in your own brain. And so, uh, yeah, Detective Winkler is absolutely one of the most fascinating characters in the sense that that really relentless detective that you know would, would coerce people uh, into giving false testimony hypothetically as the advocates would claim never showed up in our studio. It was, you know, it was the guy you see in the film, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, trying to kind of understand what's the real Randy Winkler, is it all the real Randy Winkler, is, is he, he putting done on some, a show? Yeah, has he done some growing in the past right. couple decades right. as a human? Yeah, exactly. And so, it and and there's just mis there's mystery about why he left the department, too. Like, the advocates claim that they think he got forced out of the department because of how he behaved in the Monfiles trial, but there's evidence to the contrary that it was had nothing to do with that, and he had PTSD and all this stuff, supposedly, according to his side. Um, and so it's 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 all a big mess, but that's that mess is kind of what makes it feel really human to me in a deep way. Like it's it's like it's just it is so messy, and that just feels like yeah, that's what these cases are. <laughs> yeah, there was some court footage that you were able to put in this, which I thought was really interesting, along with the Talking Heads interviews. But then there were also reenactments, and sometimes that can be so distracting. And I really love how you did the reenactments to oh, give you. us to. It just didn't take you out of the story that mm. much because you're like, oh, there's actors doing this. Is there like a method behind? Using that kind of storytelling where it isn't distracting. Yeah, for this one, I tried really hard to uh, do some a few obvious things, which is never see an actor's full on face. That was number one because that always gets really distracting. But mostly, I wanted the reenactments to function as like fragments of memory. They weren't going to be like, here, here's what happened. Now watch it. It's not that. It's more of a you know, okay, this this person's giving this account of what happened in their own personal experience or own personal memory, but it's been 30 years. So we're going to see just a very kind of fragmented aspect of it. But, you know, to help you imagine what this might have been like, if this is what happened, here's what it might have felt like in that moment. But never anything that's like, yeah, trying to actually recreate something that really did happen. Mm -hmm. I just kind of want to go a little bit into your personal life, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. Yeah, of course. Give me your background. Like, what got you interested in making movies and documentaries? Like, 
where did it all start for you, Michael? So uh, probably around middle of sixth grade uh, when I was allowed to make a video for my first uh, uh, English project in sixth grade. And, you know, I was always one of those kids that like got picked last in gym class and all that sort of stuff. And suddenly, you know, when I got known to be as the video kid, I'm like the first kid picked whenever there's a video project. So it was a way for me to stand out and be kind of, you know, unique and different and sought after. And ever since then, it's just kind of stuck. Wait, but I, what was that first video project? That, I need to know. <laughs> oh, totally. It was a book report on the novel And Then There Were None, which is like a murder mystery also. Uh-huh. Um, for those who haven't read it, basically it's one of those classic countdowns where you got nine people or something and like each chapter somebody's dying and then like there's one in the end hypothetically so it was me and one friend and we just kept alternating roles who's gonna die in this scene and that scene and we just kept coming back to life and yeah very sixth grade it was great but i'd always been drawn to to storytelling to one degree or another from even earlier than that i wanted to be an animator for disney when i was a very little kid and it just something about creating stories with a character and making them go through something and have it be entertaining was always something I was drawn to. So from sixth grade to when you started making your first documentary, what was the journey there? And are there resources in our state that help dreams like that come true? Uh, yeah. So I, I know there are a lot of them. Um, we we ended up kind of going very solo on this, to be honest, for the last nine years. I have a production company that I founded with my father um, back in 2009 called Story First Media. And so normally we're doing like commercials and story branding and stuff for businesses. But we've made these two documentaries now and we really self-funded this. We went beyond the entire budget of our first documentary in the first week of filming this one. So it was a huge step up. And we, you know, we had pulled on friends and family the whole way um, and, you know, tried to to really kind of shoestring this thing together. Yeah. Um, and, if, you know, it's kind of that old creative adage of, you know, fast, cheaper, good. You get to keep two. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do want it to be good and it has to be cheap. So it's not going to be fast. It's been nine years. Right. But, yeah, there's, you know, there's a ton of people in Wisconsin that are doing film and video production all the time. They're making their living doing commercials and web content and all that stuff. And they know each other through that ecosystem. But we pulled on all those same people for this project. And then, you know, all those people were, were doing stuff, uh, you know, setting up these scenes uh, and then these reenactments and stuff. So it's it's a unique and cool experience for them as well. Um, but they're all it shows how talented they are, too. If, mm-hmm. if they've given if given the opportunity and more projects like that were around they're, they're They're able to pull off national looking stuff. I read that it was very important for you to involve as many local people as possible in the production of this. Can you tell me about who you were able to find? And Yeah, so it's all people that we've pulled on, you know, for our normal commercial jobs, too, and brought back into the fold for this. Our cinematographer is a long-term friend of mine, uh, lives out in Los Angeles, named Michael Nye. He's won the Emerging Cinematography Award uh, from the Cinematographers Guild out there a couple times. Alexander Valdez did the original score. He lives in Barcelona now, but he and I went to high school in Madison together. My uh, producer's uh, Jared Gores and uh, Natalie Pohorsky, both are Wisconsinites who now are living in California. Joe Pudis, who co-wrote this with me, uh, is my uh, old best friend where I used to live together in Austin, Texas, but he's from Madison. So we've kind of brought all these people back together uh, to work on this film together. And, and I really wanted at the end of all this to be able to say, with very few exceptions, that it's a Wisconsin story filmed in Wisconsin, made by Wisconsinites. And uh, now it's getting a national release. And that's just kind of a cool thing. It's not always 
you can't, you don't always find that sort of thing, especially in a state like Wisconsin, where, you know, we don't have a great film office situation anymore. We don't have, you know, some of the same incentives other states do. There's not as much production happening here all the time. It really was important to me that we got that somehow with this. Is there any kind of feeling that that's going to change again and Wisconsin will make it better and more attractive for filmmakers to come here and shoot things? I really hope so. I, I, I would I would root for anybody trying to make that happen. I was involved very briefly um, with my, my producer, Natalie, uh, when she was in charge of Film Wisconsin, trying to make something like that happen. There's there's just a lot of inertia. There's just a lot of uh, reasons not to. There's a lot of people who are passionate about making it happen, but then outside of those passionate core people, it's kind of like going uphill. So I really would put all my support in the world behind anybody who wanted to try and make that happen. And obviously, Milwaukee Film does a great job keeping film on mind here in Milwaukee. One little wish maybe I would make personally as a Wisconsin resident is for Madison and Milwaukee's production ecosystems to communicate a little more, to work together a little bit more. In, yeah, instead of they're so competition. separate. It's so separate. Like it, it it's so weird because I would I would think of it as being more like a Twin Cities or a Dallas Fort Worth situation where they're kind of the same but they're just separated a little bit. But it, but they're it, even just the production companies and the filmmakers they kind of like stay in these two places and and I feel if we're gonna yeah overcome this inertia Madison and Milwaukee uh, has to kind of come together a little bit uh, from a production standpoint combine our powers and become super friends exactly Justice League yes Because I'm not a filmmaker, what is the biggest thing that can blow your budget in the first couple weeks of filming? (laughs) I don't even, I'm trying to think, I'm like, what could that even be? Yeah, it's crew and production value. So, you know, gear and stuff like that. We, these interviews, the longest interview was Detective Randy Winkler and it was 12 hours over two days. Um, And so, so we brought him into our studio in Madison at the time. Um, did something similar with Mike Piaskowski and Cal Monfals and all these people. So it was just weeks of interviews, dramatically lit. We had a friend of mine who's a former Wisconsinite who lives in L.A. now, Michael Nye, is the cinematographer, flew him back in and, you know, really put a lot of time and effort into how this looks because we wanted it to feel legit, not small. We wanted it to feel like, you know, it is, this is this is a real production. And I think we pulled that off and it looks way more expensive than it actually is. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not still expensive by our standards. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, too. I like how you lit everyone because you couldn't really tell where necessarily they were, because mm. um, a lot of times you can watch documentaries and you're like, oh, you're clearly talking to me from jail somehow. Right. So that was kind of neat, too, as the story unfolded to see what the fates were of everyone, because I didn't look into the story at all. I just wanted to watch the documentary and have that unfold for me. That's good to know. Yeah. So and that's something we thought of early on, too, because we we explored before we started filming, we explored a couple of options of interviewing some of the men who were still in prison at the time. But we ended up holding back on that. And we we offered to do like phone interviews, kind of serial style, you know, the podcast serial before that very Mm -hmm. reason. We didn't want in the storytelling to betray if someone was in prison or not right now or whatever. So letters ended up working for one character in the film. Uh, and one of them's obviously been out. So he's in and stuff. But yeah, it, it's a, uh, uh, all those creative thoughts kind of went in early on and then we just stuck with it. So, so here's a spoiler. If you haven't watched it yet, um, 
so you started the interviews while all the men were in prison mm -hmm. and then you ended them when it seemed like the timeline when most of them were out. So we stopped filming before they were out, but then they all systematically got released on parole like shortly thereafter. So we updated all the kind of where are they now stuff at the end. The only one who remains behind bars now is Keith Kutzka, mm -hmm. who is seen as like the ringleader of the Monfile Six. And he's up for parole again this year. Um, so at some point that'll be back in the news again where he's for parole. And like I said earlier, this happens to be the 30th anniversary of when Tom was found in the, the pulp vet. So it's a, they did a whole piece on kind of revisiting the case in the newspapers in the state recently. Um, so it, it's, it's a story that, that just won't go away to some degree or another. And it's, it's a fascinating. The interesting, one of the other interesting things that I gleaned from there is a lot of the six that weren't Keith mm. kind of were talking about how I don't know if it's just how it was edited or it seemed like they thought he was responsible for something mm -hmm, almost, mm -hmm. which then I was like getting my wheels turning like, well, did they have they had a confrontation with Tom at the water fountain? But did that end there? Like, yeah. were you ever clear of what with all these interviews? Did you ever get a clear picture of what actually happened? Or are uh, you just well, I mean, I, I have my own opinion, but I but I, I try very hard to, you know, kind of retain the audience's agency yes, I yes. want I want audiences to be able to watch it and like observe it themselves and come away with their own takeaways but to answer that specific question um, about the the Monfell six and how they see Keith yeah they, they seem to paint it as uh, he drove this confrontation that cornered Tom that made Tom feel like he was under threat in some mm -hmm. way that then splinters off and either becomes murder or suicide right so they blame him for that but then it's like what happens after that is the thing where everyone splits. Yeah. And we will leave it at that because I don't mm -hmm. want to ruin anything yeah. for anybody because I think that just watching the the whole documentary, I mean, there's really never a moment where it seems like you could have done more editing. And that's just my <laughs> own personal opinion. I was kind of on the edge of my seat the whole time. Oh, that's really good to hear. Thank yeah. you. This documentary is going to how can people get a hold of it? So it is playing at the Milwaukee Film Festival, um, but uh, if you can't make it to the two screenings we have there, it is also available for pre-order on Apple Movies and iTunes right now, and it will be available kind of wherever you buy or rent movies on digital VOD starting May 2nd. Now you are a hustler and you're doing your own marketing and promo, but once this wraps up or once you are done with the final edit and the movie was put together, what do you do? Do you take a break to kind of clear your brain from what you've immersed yourself in for the last nine years? Like, how do you even go to your next project that isn't one of those other work related? Yeah, it's 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 hard. You know, my wife has been helping me recently kind of like just acknowledge that it's over. Um, that's been kind of hard to do. I, I've been mentally in some ways out of this for a couple of years already, but we haven't crossed any finish line until now. So mm -hmm. it's it's, it, we're having to force ourselves to acknowledge and celebrate it as a win and all that stuff because it's not coming naturally. But yeah, I've, I've, you know, we were we were done with this at the start of the pandemic, and and you know we've been just trying to find you know a way to get it out there the right way, and we wanted to do it well, and the pandemic really threw a wrench into all that. So, but now it's here, and it, being the 30th anniversary, it just feels really appropriate. How many people do you think get to that point at the end of a documentary and don't have the last push, whether it's financially or strength, to finish it. I don't know how they do it. I've honestly been saying that to myself for the last like five years that I don't know how 
people are supposed to make independent films who don't just have a ton of money at their disposal. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have a ton of money at my disposal, but I was able to pull on a lot of friends and family. People who don't have that, how do they do it? My primary emotion at this place is just gratitude that people actually thought this was worth doing. Because it starts with this little germ of an idea, and then you just kind of take it one day at a time, one step at a time, and eventually people are like, oh yeah, that's that's really worthy of my time, effort, money, whatever. And somehow it becomes a thing. And I don't, it's hard to look back on and reverse engineer how you got there. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't know how people do it. It's, I, I, I want to do whatever I can to make it easier for other folks, but it's, it's, a, it's a chore. Yeah. Going back to one of your other documentaries, you did a music documentary about a very famous drummer. Yeah, we're still working on that, actually, but we've been filming it for almost as long. Um, It's called Give the Drummer Some. Um, I'm producing this one. I'm not the director. The director is Trevor Banks, a former Wisconsinite now living in Brooklyn. It's about Clyde Stubblefield, the former drummer for James Brown. And uh, the he, most sampled drummer of all time. That's the, that's the hook. <laughs> that's it. He he his breakbeat in the funky drummer. Uh, yeah, most sampled drum beat in hip hop history. And yet he never really got any returns or royalties or anything because he wasn't credited on the record. So we're kind of doing this as a tribute to Clyde. You know, Trevor's known Clyde as kind of a grandfather figure since he was a little kid. So he was able to have access to Clyde in his later years wow. up until when he passed in 2018 or 17. I can't remember which exact year it was. But then, uh, yeah, we've been working on that for a while and we, we just got back from New York recently where we filmed an interview with Questlove who's been talking about how he wants to kind of carry Clyde's legacy or sees himself doing that. It's been fascinating to listen to all these music musicians themselves but also music professionals, producers, managers talk about what Clyde meant and yeah I, I, Trevor and I are really excited to have that come out soon. So producer on this one, writer, director on uh, Beyond Human Nature, maybe the job description is obvious to you, but for us lay people, like which one do you prefer? Well, I mean, <laughs> at heart, I'm, I, I, seem, I think of myself as a storyteller and it's really corny, but it, but it's true. Like I, I, stories are what I'm addicted to, whether it's for life, you know, stories are therapeutic tools, uh, stories for entertainment, you know, in kind of this, this way with movies and books and such and stories for, you know, any you know, when you've designed an audience, a political cause, a nonprofit, a business, any of these things, stories, it's all the same ingredients. It's just about shifting the motivations. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm addicted to storytelling as an ego side. I'm, I'm a director first. I'm a writer director first, but I, I, I love what Trevor's doing with this and we've known each other a long time and, and he's the absolute right person to tell this story. So I just wanted, I'm grateful he has me in his sidecar for this. Awesome. <laughs> As a storyteller, I'm guessing that you are gaining something from every one of these films that you make and interviews that you, you know, all these interviews and getting to meet people. What is the biggest thing about your own personal life did you take away from Beyond Human Nature? Man, that's a great question. You know, it's hard to know what it's like to tell a really high stakes story that has real world consequences for real people until you've gone through it because you are you are having ethical debates with yourself the whole time you know i argued with myself throughout the whole 9 years am i doing the right thing like by keeping this 30,000 foot up or should i get more personal and 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 say no this is what i think and argue for that because it's what I believe happened. Like I have my opinion, like I said, but I just don't, I don't know that it's any more valuable than anyone else's opinion who's spent some time looking at this case. But I've debated that this whole time and I just sort of feel like it's it's more valuable as a, as a document when you can tell the story in a way 
that the audience doesn't feel like you're putting your thumb on the scale because it leaves them more able to actually argue for whatever they think happened because they've reckoned with the alternative. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, they've heard what the other side is saying and they don't agree. So now they can really, you know, stand up to scrutiny. Whereas if I had just gone, here's what I think and here's the, the argument all the way through, how would you really know you could trust that documentary? Yeah. So I wanted to make sure that the audience could trust that we were good faith arbiters. But that's something you argue with yourself in your brain every day, the whole time. A good storyteller, I feel like, has to have a certain amount of empathy. But do you think that actually gets in the way of good storytelling? It's a great question. You know, I always think back to to Roger Ebert's claim that movies are empathy machines. And I love that. And I, and I guess I just feel like empathy towards all humans in the movie is where my orientation lies. I think that certain people in this documentary don't have it right. I think they've done some things that I don't agree with, but I have empathy for them as humans and why they did what they did, why they arrived where they arrived at, even if I don't agree with them. So it's uh, it's trying to tell that human story in a way that maybe as an audience you can watch it, disagree with that person, and then still kind of see a part of yourself in them, though. If, if we can bridge that gap in some way, I feel like the movie's done its job a little bit. That's that's kind of what I'm after. I feel like that's what I took away from it. So that was actually like right on for <laughs> <Good>. my experience. <laughs> All right, Michael. So this is the time where we talk about what else are you watching? And while we can do that, who influences you from that sixth grade version of you making your first film to now? Yeah, well, I mean, from that childhood, you know, level, it's hard to not have been like all about Steven Spielberg, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I read Spielberg's biography was the first one I ever read as a kid. Interesting. I've never yeah. read that. What is. So I, I even honestly, because I read it when I was a kid, so I don't even remember which author it was, but I could find it's like the main biography from like 25 years ago. But it all talks about all of his upbringing. Also, we just saw it, frankly, in The Fablemans. So I watched that movie kind of going like, oh, yeah, I know all of this. I remember this <laughs> when it was written about. But it's um as a kid, you know, you just see him as the one. Um, as mm-hmm. I've gotten older, Errol Morris and Werner Herzog, um, and then in the 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 true crime genre, Jean-Xavier de Lestrade, who directed Murder on a Sunday Morning and The Staircase, which The Staircase I saw years ago when it was first on HBO. Yeah. Um, and that was like my favorite for a while because it, again, approached it in such a mysterious respect for the true mystery of it. And so, uh, yeah, but Errol Morris probably philosophically is the one that I am drawn the most to at this point. And who would you love to work with the most? Oh, God. You have a dream list out there. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I would, I, I probably, I mean, it, it's hard to say not Herzog. I mean, Herzog would just be a trip. But you know, as a, as a director, you know, I'm trying to pivot now into narrative. So that in my my, you know, I've done two documentaries, and now I'm really ready to get back into working with actors, which is some of my background in, in screenwriting and working with actors. So you know, uh, there's a ton of new young actors that I would love to work with. Um, and and obviously also try and find some more Milwaukee actors too and, and Midwest actors to kind of bring into that. So um, that'd be my my hope for the next one. Awesome. So what have you been watching recently? What have I been watching? Well, I was just pulling up my letterbox here. Uh, uh, yes, that letterbox <laughs> has been such a great tool because, man, all the movies I watched during COVID, I have no recollection of I them. I know. But that's what I spent most of my time doing. Yeah. I Well, the most recent thing I rewatched, because uh, I'd seen it before, but, uh, but the Criterion Channel has a whole bunch of erotic thrillers on right now. Uh, and Bound, I love um, the, the Wachowski's first film. Um, uh, I don't think so I've ever good. seen that. Oh man, it is so well done. Okay. Um, if you're a fan at all of like 
you know, Blood Simple or, you know, any kind of like noirish but simple low budget noir, mm-hmm. um, Bound is unbelievable. And, and I forget sometimes how good it is. Uh, <laughs> it, it's probably better than the, all the Matrixes and all that stuff, too. It's just so good. Um, but then it's also the start of baseball season. So I was uh, cramming my yearly rewatches of Moneyball and, and uh, Catching Hell, the the documentary as well about the uh, Steve Bartman case in the Chicago Cubs in oh, 2003, yeah. um, which is was a huge influence on Last Day at Lambeau for me, my first documentary. And um, yeah, John Gibney just does a great job uh, of kind of showing the thin line that separates sports fans from fanatics, yeah. you know, um, in that documentary. And that's uh, that's available on ESPN, so that's easy to watch too. But they're all great. Hi, all right, I have a couple more questions now that popped in my mind. What yeah. was the first movie you remember seeing in a theater? Oh, God. I I remember, so 93, I remember seeing Apollo 13, and I remember seeing The Lion King. I'm sure there was something before that, but I remember those. So what's the movie you've seen the most in your life? Oh, God. Well, very cliche from a filmmaker standpoint, but I, I, I mean, I've seen basically all of Tarantino's movies a million times. Maybe a lesser known one that I've seen a ton um, is uh, Stephen Freer's The Hit. Um, which is a British uh, mob movie, also from the Criterion Collection. I, for a long time, had that as my favorite movie of all time. Uh, might still be there. It's a, it's also an amazing kind of a, a crime drama road movie uh, where John Hurt and Tim Roth capture Terrence Stamp, who's on the run, um, and try to bring him back over from Madrid into London to, you know, suffer the consequences of ratting on the mob and they're all just incredible like all three of those actors who obviously are great together in this movie in the 80s is just unbelievable yeah incredibly talented cast yes all right then what is the movie your comfort movie you just are feeling kind of down and you need to watch something that's gonna make you feel better something very broad and uh comedy most likely so i came of age in my 20s right around all those years of like 40 year old virgin and anchorman and old school and all that stuff so uh so i'll probably put on something like that or honestly this isn't this isn't film as a tv but i know there's a thin line now um (laughs) is uh parks and recreation episodes all the time. Oh my gosh. I can't stop watching the finale episode. Mm. I don't know if you've seen it recently where they all kind of, they're all talking about, you know, being apart and leaving the park system. And then they go like forward a couple of years in the future. Yes. And John Raffio and yes. his sister. Yeah. The, the don't be funeral. suspicious. Don't yeah, be right. suspicious. I cannot <laughs> stop singing. Don't be suspicious. I'm it's so a, glad yeah. you knew what I was talking oh, about. Oh, absolutely. I, I've seen the whole thing multiple times. Yeah. And then your favorite kids movie that you don't have to be with a kid to watch. A great one. Okay, this is actually, I've got a great deep cut for this one. Um, the Snowman, not the horror movie. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, there's there's an animated short film called The Snowman. It's got to be from the early 80s, if not earlier. It has some of the coolest, I think it's based on a children's book, and they and they mirrored the, the illustrations in the book into the short film. has an amazing score like a score that will not leave your head the whole week after you hear it. So ne- I would say next holiday season when it's snowing and, and and it's like the first day where you don't want to leave the house because you're snowed in or whatever, put this on and it is, it it's 30 minutes, I think. Um, okay. And it is, it's just, it's just, it's magical. It's silent too. There's no dialogue and it's just, it's unbelievable, pure cinema. It's great. Oh, delightful. Yeah. I will put that in my letterbox yep. that pops up next time it snows. Yes. Thanks, Michael Nielsen, for joining us. Uh, we're talking about the movie Beyond Human Nature. It's playing twice at the Milwaukee Film Festival, Saturday, April 29th at 12.30 p.m. at the Times Cinema, and then at the Oriental Theater on Monday, May 1st at 9.15 p.m. 
Or if they can't make the film festival, how can they find it again? Yeah, so it's on pre-order now on Apple Movies and iTunes uh, and starting May 2nd, anywhere you buy or rent digital on-demand movies. Well, this is really fun. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And uh, we're always trying to get people to go out to the theater and see a movie. Where do you... F- where do you fit on there? So we, my wife and I live right by uh, the Avalon. So we go there all the time. Nice. All right. Go out and see a movie, my friends. I'm Dory Zori from 889 Radio Milwaukee. Christopher Pollard will be back next week. He's a little under the weather today. But we'd like to thank Carrie Salinas for producing our Cinebuds podcast. Thanks to Brett Newski for his super awesome theme song. Thanks to our sponsor of Cinebuds, Associated Bank. And Michael, you probably know this. We're a nonprofit and we couldn't do any of this without the members. So thanks to all the members of both Radio Milwaukee and Milwaukee Film. So until next time. See you at the movies. See you at the movies. (laughs) 